This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Ask the Expert. As always, I'm your host, Steph Storer, and I'm so happy to introduce you to today's guest, author Samantha Wilcoxon. Thanks for joining us, Samantha. Hi, thanks for having me here. So today we're going to talk about King Henry VIII's second cousin, cousin once removed, some kind of cousin relationship, right? Um, Margaret Pohl. It's a good one because her story is so tragic and so sad, but still so interesting. And it's one of those things where it's, you know, as if we don't have enough to be mad at Henry for, right? Her death is just one of those, one of those things where it's like, what was he thinking kind of situations, right? So right. let's kick things off with um, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about her. And it would just be helpful if we got to know a little bit about her lineage and her upbringing, mm-hmm. uh, maybe right up until her death, just a super quick bio before we get to our viewer questions. Sure, sure. So Margaret Pohl was the daughter of Georgia Clarence, who is a brother of Edward IV and Richard III. And his wife, Isabel Neville, who is the daughter of Richard Neville, Kingmaker, Earl of Warwick, all that. So at the time Margaret was born in 1473, that was that was some pretty impressive lineage. And she could have expected a really bright future, which, as we know, for her and for many other people in that era, um, it's just a really turbulent time. And what maybe seemed like a good position one moment was not such a good position the next. Um, So but that does make her then a cousin to Elizabeth of York, who was, of course, Henry VII, the first Tudor king, was she was married to him. So that did help Margaret in a way. She was an attendant for Elizabeth before Henry had her married to Richard Pohl. So Richard Pohl served as a chamberlain to Prince Arthur. And that is how Margaret first got to know Catherine, who would be Henry's first wife, longest lasting wife. Um, And that was that was an important relationship to Margaret and to Catherine for the rest of their lives. They got along very well. They shared the Catholic faith. Margaret shared Catherine's lying ins with her when Margaret or I'm sorry, Catherine many times, you know, got pregnant, but that didn't result in very many surviving children. Only Princess Mary ended up surviving to adulthood. And Margaret then also served as Mary's governess. So she was very close to Catherine and to Henry at that point, um, Henry VIII then. Um, they, he was not concerned about her being a threat to him in maybe the way his father had been. So especially when he first became king, Henry issued a general pardon that included most of these Plantagenet cousins. He raised Margaret and her family up. He made her Countess of Salisbury. So Margaret was doing very well at that point. And it wasn't until much later, you know, after 23 years of marriage hadn't resulted in a son that could be his heir. Meanwhile, people like Margaret did have 
sons and even grandchildren. And he started to see people the way his father had as um, rivals to his throne. So that was when things started going downhill for Margaret and her sons. And then her probably most well-known son, Reginald, who by the time Margaret died, was a cardinal of the Catholic Church. He spoke out very strongly against Henry from a position in Europe where he was much safer than the rest of his family was. So Margaret was the daughter of the Duke of Clarence. We're going right back to the beginning here. Yes. So she was the daughter of the Duke of Clarence. Now he was notoriously tried and found guilty of treason, ultimately executed. The vat of Malmsey wine is for another conversation. But now once her father was killed, what became of her? Uh, How old was she? And what was her life at that, at that time? Mm -hmm. So she was really young and her mother had also died not long before that her mother died giving birth to a son who died shortly after she did. So by the time she was about five years old, Margaret was an orphan. And so she ended up in the household of the children of Edward IV, because this is when he was king. So at that point, she was in different homes with with his children or other relatives um, until after he died and then everything changed for her again. And now, okay. So then she gets a little bit older and I guess you said that Richard Pohl worked with Henry the seventh. Is that who put, that's who put them together? Correct. Yeah. He's actually, yeah, he's kind of a distant relative of Henry through his mother, Margaret Beaufort. Um, Richard Pohl fits into that family tree in an extended way. So he not only was a loyal follower of Henry VII, but he had a familial relationship that Henry felt he could count on him remaining loyal. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. Okay, so so then it was Henry VII who brought them together. Mm-hmm. What kind of a man was, was Richard Pohl? Did they have a good relationship? And um, I know they had children, because obviously we know the Cardinal was her son, but right. what other children did they have together? Right. So we don't know a lot about Richard Pohl and um, other, their, their marriage seems happy enough because, as you said, they did have children. Margaret had four sons and one daughter who lived to adulthood and possibly other children who did not. And he, Richard Pohl, lived until 1504. So they were married for a fair amount of time between, let's see, the time she was a teenager, and that's about the same time that Elizabeth of York died. So so there was a good amount of time in there that they were married, and I found no evidence of animosity between them or that kind of thing. And um, he did serve both Henry VII and Henry VIII 
during that time. So um, there, her other son, she had one named Arthur who died younger. And then Henry Pohl is her oldest. He's the one who becomes Baron Montague. And Ursula marries Henry Stafford, who was the son of the Duke of Buckingham, which of course seemed like a fantastic match at the time that it was made. Um, and then Reginald. Got it. Okay. So now on to, you know, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Now Henry VIII is reigning. What was his issue? I mean, this is really, this is what this whole conversation is about, I'm sure. But it all stems from what was his issue with Margaret? And now, did he want to get rid of all of the Poles, all of the Plantagenets? Where does the disconnect mm-hmm. start. Mm-hmm. Right. And well, well, like I said, when Henry VIII first comes to the throne after his father's death, he, he does not have that animosity toward the Poles or the Courtenays or these, you know, the other families that are basically his cousins all out there, the, the other branches of the York family. Um, he raises most of them up, except for the Dela Poles. That is one that he, he doesn't ever get along with them either. <laughs> but, um, with Margaret, especially, she became an important part of his household. And I think that maybe not everyone realizes that Henry and Catherine were married for 23 years. So that was actually a really long time that, at least for a lot of that, while he still had hopes of having a son with her and the years that he still was in love with her, that he got along just fine with these extended family members. He didn't see them as threats. He was young and athletic and virile and didn't think he had anything to fear from these relatives, male or female. So it wasn't until later when he wanted to set Catherine aside is when his big issue started with Margaret because Margaret and Catherine not only shared their Catholic faith, but they had been friends by that time for a large part of their lives. So Margaret supported Catherine and supported Princess Mary and her claim to, you know, be her father's heir. And that didn't set well with Henry. Henry didn't want Mary or Elizabeth to be considered for his crown. A lot of people didn't even think that was something that was possible was for a daughter to inherit from him. So when he wanted to set Catherine aside, that was really when things started going poorly for Margaret. And of course she's there at that time with four sons that when she's supporting Catherine, he's also looking at these four adult sons that he thinks maybe Margaret will decide should replace him. That was actually going to be my next question. Was it more about that she was being unsupportive of his relationship with Anne Boleyn and supporting Catherine? Or was it because her, you know, her sons and her offspring were potentially a threat to him or a combination of both? I mean, the fact that she was, you know, so old when this all went down, mm-hmm. it, what is what was he actually afraid of with her? Right. And I don't know that he was necessarily afraid of Margaret herself doing anything. Um, Reginald 
really didn't seem to understand that what he was doing over in Europe was going to be taken out on his family who was in England. You know, Henry, when Reginald spoke out against Henry setting aside Catherine, Henry breaking from the Catholic Church to make himself head of the Church of England, his marriage to Anne Boleyn, Reginald wrote and spoke out against that very publicly. And that was, I mean, we all know Henry VIII doesn't like, didn't like anyone to disagree with him, let alone be over there on the continent trying to get people to kind of assemble against him. So, and Reginald, at least at first, thought that there was a chance that if he brought brought these things up to Henry, explained his responsibilities as king, and not only to his countrymen, but as a leader in faith, as all monarchs were seen at that time, whether they declared themselves head of the church like Henry did, you know, people's faith was also a part of what rulers, um, that their, their subjects, they were meant to be involved in that. So Reginald at first really just hoped to convince Henry to do the right thing. And then it all turned into something that involved a lot more animosity. You know, Henry was the one who had paid for Reginald's education. He was the one who had sent him to Europe where Reginald had really spent more of his time than in England at that point. So I think that Reginald didn't understand how much different maybe by then Henry was than what he remembered of him and didn't realize how much he would be potentially putting the rest of his family in danger because they were there for Henry to take his anger out on them. Now, Henry did also send assassins to Europe to try and kill Reginald, and they were obviously unsuccessful. And so with all, you know, things kind of just really piled up for Henry between his lack of an heir and this break with the church and people who were disagreeing with him. And, you know, you get to about 1536, where he's also then executed Anne Boleyn, and he marries Jane. She has a son, but then she immediately dies. You have the pilgrimage of grace. He has his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, dies. He has a lot happen all at the same time. And he just kind of turns around and explodes at anyone who's disagreeing with him at that point. So what was she actually charged with? So... Margaret was arrested about the same time as her son, Henry, and then also Henry Courtenay was arrested at the same time as part of the Exeter conspiracy. And they were arrested. The claim was that they were going to put Henry Courtenay on the throne in place of Henry, Um, and possibly that he would marry Princess Mary. There's... There's a lot of conflicting things said about it, whether they had conspired anything at all. They had at least certainly written in letters negative things about Henry that they probably shouldn't have written. And of course, Reginald had been very open with what he wrote against Henry, but he wasn't available. His older brother, Henry, and his cousin, another Henry, Courtenay, 
they were available and were arrested and executed. And Margaret was put under, at that time, house arrest was later moved to the tower. So you you kind of touched on it, but my next question is, was there any truth to anything that she was charged with? Um, I don't believe that Margaret or even her sons or the younger, you know, her son's cousins, the younger generation, I don't believe that any of them were actually going to, say, attack Henry, try to by force remove him. Did they maybe have some ideas about who might take his throne after he died when all he had at that point was two daughters and an infant son? They probably did talk about those things as, as most people would. Um, So it now technically some of that was illegal at the time though, too, speaking about, you know, even predicting the death of the King or talking about what might happen when he did die, that, that was treason. So were they technically guilty? I, I suppose that they were. And that's what uh, I, I've seen called judicial murder. You know, when, when you're the king and you make the laws and a trial is pretty likely to turn out how the king wants the results to turn out and people are executed, was it all legal? It sort of has a, a gilding of legality, but it's, it was really judicial murder. And how much Margaret had to do with any of that is even less certain. She was, you know, in her 60s by that point. She wrote to Reginald encouraging him to, you know, rein things in a bit to demonstrate his loyalty to the king. Now, whether she did that because she thought that was just the right thing for him to do or because she saw how much danger he was putting the rest of the family in that maybe he didn't realize we can't really know exactly her motivations, but she did try to write to Reginald and had Henry, Henry Pohl, her oldest son, had him write to Reginald in the same vein, trying to get him to stop some of what he was doing. So it sounds like she really was just taking kind of the blame for a lot of other people's actions. And one of our listeners was had written in asking a question that I think we all really want to know too, is that how much, how much of Henry VIII's, you know, for lack of a better word, wrath Mm -hmm. against Margaret was really just about Reginald. Right. Was it really mostly because of his actions that he just wanted to take things out on her and the rest of the family? Yeah. I mean, I feel like based on what I've read that, that, that is definitely the case. I, I don't think a good argument can be made for the idea that Margaret herself was any kind of threat to Henry. Um, any connections that she had were, you know, any power or position she had was what he had given her and what he had by that time also taken away. He had demonstrated that he could raise her up, he could bring her low. There had never been anything that she had been able to do about any of that. And, but Reginald did, because Reginald wasn't in England. And he was, um, by the time Margaret died, was a cardinal in the Catholic Church, was later almost elected Pope. So he had some power that didn't come from Henry. And Henry couldn't get to him, whether through legal means or sending assassins after him. So I think that he did turn to first Reginald's brother and cousin. And when Reginald didn't 
respond to the executions after the Exeter conspiracy when he didn't respond to that by trying to reconcile or submit or however, however one wants to put it. Um, then Henry kept Reginald's elderly mother in prison too. And it wasn't until another rebellion was taking Henry away. He was going North to deal with other issues. And that's when Margaret was suddenly informed you're going to be executed this morning. And she had hours, if not less than an hour to prepare for that. She had no trial. So she was just, she was imprisoned for a couple of years and then just suddenly executed. Now in your research, have you found any evidence of Reginald feeling any guilt over that? So not necessarily thinking it was his fault, but kind of. Right. And I do think he, I do think he had guilt. There's um, some evidence that after Margaret was also killed, that he kind of closed himself off for a while. And he, he said that his family had been martyred to the Catholic cause So in his eyes, it wasn't about treason to Henry. It was standing up for their Catholic faith, which at that time sort of went together. You know, heresy and treason, there was a really blurry line between those things at that time. So I think he did feel guilt. He, at least before his mother was executed, but after his brother had been it was almost like he saw it as a call that he wasn't doing enough, that he needed to be more outspoken or fight harder against Henry because this was the kind of thing that was happening. And then after his mother died, maybe he felt a little bit differently. Not that he ever submitted to Henry, but he did seem to kind of close himself away for a while. And you know, he was a cardinal of Catholic church. So he closed himself, you know, in prayer and devotion and kind of that monastic sort of um, going away for a little while to just focus on prayer. And so, but then he did come back obviously later and never, never submitted to Henry and never returned to England until it was uh, Mary who was queen. Right. Of course. I mean, it, it must at the time, it must just have been so overwhelming to, to see what he was capable of. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, she was innocent, an innocent woman. So Mm -hmm. now we, we've gone through her children. We know kind of what became of them. Did she have grandchildren? What was, what was the rest of her family like and her descendants after her passing? So that is, she did have a lot of grandchildren. Um, I couldn't, tell you what happened to all of them. I can say that, so if we start with Henry, the oldest son, um, his oldest son, who was also named Henry, was taken to the tower at the same time he was. He wasn't executed, but the records of him being there just sort of stop. So it's believed that his son died in the tower um, and he had other children also that weren't a part of that, but at least one of his children, whether, I mean, probably of illness rather than anything else, but never left the tower. So whatever happened to him, he, he never left. And then, so 
Margaret's other two sons, besides Reginald, obviously didn't have children. Um, Jeffrey and Arthur both had children that I don't know exactly what happened to them. So Jeffrey was the brother who actually was arrested first in the Exeter conspiracy and was tortured into giving evidence against Henry, the older brother. So he actually tried to commit suicide at least twice. Once he, both in when he was still imprisoned and later because of his guilt over what he had done that resulted in the death of multiple family members of his. So he, but he did have children that, that survived him. And then Margaret's daughter, Ursula, she is the one who is married to Henry Stafford, who after his father, Edward, the Duke of Buckingham, he was executed for treason also in 1521. He was stripped of that title. So he was not Duke of Buckingham. He was eventually made Baron Stafford, but he was never a Duke like his father had been. And so Ursula's future, you know, what she thought, what her mother thought that was going to be never quite turned out to be as expected, but they did have, I want to say 14 children. They had lots, lots of children who for the most part seem to stay out of trouble. <laughs> Unlike a lot of their, their extended family for the last few generations really, but she did have a son, Thomas, Thomas Stafford was part of the Wyatt rebellion against Queen Mary and was executed for his part in that. So, um, when, uh, you know, I, I have a novel about Margaret Pohl, obviously. I also wrote one after that about Queen Mary. And that was a really interesting thing to write about, was thinking about how Mary must have felt when Margaret had been her governess. They had been really close. And now here was her grandson, Thomas, which, of course, by that time, Margaret was not alive anymore. But it was interesting to think about that turmoil that Mary must have felt in ordering the execution of one of Margaret's grandchildren. But when we think about the Wars of the Roses and the early Tudor era, there was just so much of that happening. So much of these intertwined families infighting and, you know, ordering cousins to be executed, even elderly ladies. So, um, so yeah, that is one, uh, grandchild of Margaret's though who did also end up executed it, it I feel like I say this every time on every episode but it really is just also like incestuous and familial and everybody's related to everybody and then you right. you know you think like okay this one section of the family actually has no ties and then you hear another story and it's like <laughs> well yes they do actually they are second cousins again right right <laughs> always it's always like that now before I let you go I know you you just kind of segued into this for us. You do have uh, a series of books called the Plantagenet Embers series, mm -hmm. uh, one of which is, as you mentioned, about Margaret Pohl, which is why you're here and you're our expert. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Sure. So the book about Margaret Pohl is actually the second in the series. It's the first one is about Elizabeth of York. So when I was writing about Elizabeth of York, I, I mean, I knew about Margaret's story, but the more I was writing about Elizabeth, 
I kept thinking about Margaret and kind of what did she have going on as Elizabeth was going through what she went through, which is a whole, a whole nother crazy story, of course. But um, so by the time I got done with that, I wanted to write about Margaret. And so her book is called Faithful Traitor because um, I just kind of felt that really applied to her that she was executed as a traitor when um, a lot of that was due to her faith or her family's faith at least. But um, anyway, yeah, then the next one, which I didn't really intend to write until after I had finished Faithful Traitor, someone said to me, so are you writing about Mary next? Because the whole time I was reading this book, I was thinking about what happens to Mary next. And so that got me thinking about it too. And writing about Mary was a really emotional experience. I think that she just had a lot of, I mean, as Margaret did too, just had a lot of tragic things happen to her. And then by the time she was queen, didn't, well, she didn't have a lot of time as queen. And once she was finally able to do what she thought was right, it just, how awfully that worked out for her. So so yeah, that's that series. There's also a few little companion novellas that go with it that are that are out there. Um, but yeah, that's that's that series. Well, thank you so much. So we will all take a look for, you know, I'm guessing we can find it on Amazon and bookstores and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, mostly on Amazon. Yep. Okay, great. So we'll look for the Plantagenet Ember series. Mm-hmm. And as Samantha mentioned, the book about Margaret Pohl specifically is the second in the series called Faithful Traitor. Mm -hmm. Now, before we go, of course, I always want to give a big hello and a thank you to all our listeners who are not only listening, but who participate in today's episode. As you know, our questions for our guests are always based on the questions that we get from our listeners. So today I want to thank Katie Ray, Nancy Buchanan, B Word, Neha Roy, Lucy Catherine, Deborah Rines, Douglas Breeden, and Kate Connolly for writing in for with some questions for Samantha. Um, hopefully, we've covered everything you guys wanted to know. So again, thank you, listeners, and thank you, Samantha, for joining us. Thank you. Great to have you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 